Uh, as Jones mentioned, uh, community groups are beginning here over the next couple weeks. Uh, we strongly encourage you to get plugged into one of our community groups in our church. Whether you agree with all of our doctrine, whether you know people here, this is a great way to get involved with people who love Jesus, who will care for you. And even if you don't even know Jesus, this is a place to experience love and care from other folks. And so we'd encourage you to be a part of a community group. Now, here's the way we do community groups here in order to level the playing field, because some of you have been Christians for a very, very, very long time. And some of you are brand new to this whole Christian thing. And we want to make it very comfortable for you to enter into our community groups. We also want to be growing as a church, as a whole body. And so what we do is our community groups are what we call sermon-based. That the discussion that goes on in our community groups are based on the, ser- on the sermon and the weekly passage uh, the week previous. And so what you'll find on a weekly basis in your bulletins is you'll find not only will you find the outline for the sermon, but then inside that outline is you'll find a discussion guide. Um, now you can find this discussion guide both in your bulletins on a weekly basis, but you can also find it at our website. And I believe we may have some pictures up there. Uh, ben says just a second. But you can go to our website, which, are, by the way, our website has recently been redone. It's still under construction in a few places, but you can go to kcpchurch.org. You may notice that recently we've been pointing you to our website a lot more, a lot more power and capability uh, that we have there now. But you can go to kcpchurch.org. And then if you find on the far right side of our website, you'll find a resources link or page and go down to the sermon page. And there you'll find not only the sermons from the past week, but you'll also find connected to the sermon a notes page, which will bring down a PDF or a Word document that will have all the discussion questions from that week. So even if you cannot be here on a particular Sunday, you're out of town, you had sick children, but you're going to be going to community group that week, and you know you're going to be discussing the passage from that week and discussing the sermon from that week, you can listen to the MP3 there. You can also find the discussion questions. We strongly encourage you to at very least look through those questions, but also perhaps even use those as you walk through the passage as a means of doing Bible study yourself. For instance, tonight, there is a, or today, the discussion guide actually has you reading through all of Colossians, because when you do an expositional series, one of the best ways to understand a whole book of the Bible is to simply read through it in one sitting. You can read through Colossians in 20 minutes pretty easily. It's not that big. It's about four pages long, pretty simple. So we, that was one of the things we'd encourage you to do leading into your discussion group uh, this week with your community group. So you can find that on the website, kcpchurch.org. By the way, if you're a podcaster, we have a podcast, and I believe that is King's Chapel, King's with a apostrophe, King's Chapel, Presbyterian. Uh, you can look up our podcast there if you would like to subscribe to that and get the sermons on a weekly basis. That is it in regards to announcements for community groups and for sermon discussions. As Joan mentioned in his prayer, we are beginning a new series this morning as we're going to be looking through the book of Colossians. And one of our beliefs or one of our values here as a church is we want to be word-centered church. Now there in the realm of Christianity, there are different ways in which people often look at preaching, which is what I'm doing to you today. You're having to sit under my preaching in this sermon. Now, preaching literally means simply to proclaim. So you preach when your child disobeys you, and you discipline them, and then you share with them about the forgiveness of God. That is proclaiming the gospel. But there is also what we see in the scriptures, a particular venue in the church, a particular way in which there is unction in preaching. 
where people get excited about communicating the gospel and that God has called forth particular men who have been gifted in particular to do this. God's church has seen so fit to label me with that gifting. I don't necessarily know why, but I'm growing in it, I hope, and I hope it is affirmed and true. But within the preaching world, one of the values that we have here is we want to do expositional preaching. You may have heard of that term. You may not have heard of that term. What that means is this, that as a word-centered church, We don't want to simply let our particular whims and mores and values dictate everything that is said here on Sunday mornings. But we want to begin with what God has said and then move from that and apply it to our lives. An expository preacher then, what you often find here most Sundays, is we will begin with a text of scripture and then we will seek to help us understand what that that scripture is telling us. To put in short, Expository preaching is using the root word of expository, which is what? The word expose. We are trying to expose you to the word of God. Now, there are certain places in God's word that are not as clear as other places, are there? Like, for instance, another apostle, when talking about Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians that we're going to begin today, a man named Peter, who's one of the other apostles, says this. He mentions that what Paul often says very difficult things that are hard to understand. So often, if there are even other apostles that have a difficulty understanding the word of God given through other apostles, it is important that often we take time, set a time to study the word and make sure that we understand it, to shed light upon it, to expose the word so that we understand it rightly. So that's one aspect of what expository preaching is, is we expose you to the words. We're making sure we understand it. But then there's a flip side to expository preaching which is this. We expose the word to you, and then we expose you with the word. So we expose you to the word, and then the flip side of that is we expose the word to you. We expose you with the word, which is application. So we take the word of God, and first we seek to understand what it says, and then we turn and we seek to understand ourselves, our hearts, our lives, how we should live, our culture, and our world in light of what God's word says. This is expository preaching, and that's what we're seeking to do week in and week out, which is why most of the time on a Sunday morning, you'll find we start with a passage of Scripture, and then we move on from that. And so this morning, we come to a new book study. Actually, not so much a book, but a letter, a letter known as the book of Colossians or the epistle or letter of Colossians. If you want to know where Colossians is in your Bible, it's about 80, 85 percent of the way through your Bible. It's in a section of what is known as the, the letters, the epistles of the New Testament, and a section, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written there by the Apostle Paul. If you need an acronym, it's George Eats Peas and Carrots. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians is the carrot, or as my dad taught me, General Electric Power Company. There we go. So if you need an acrostic to help you remember where these things are, we're going to be in Colossians this morning. So turn there, verse 1, and we begin this study of this book. Hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Ascends the reading of God's holy and infallible and awesome and mighty word. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, as we begin this study this morning, this one is a little bit academic, didactic, a lot more teaching, 
But Lord, I pray that your spirit would still move in this place. That as we seek to get an understanding of what is being communicated in the whole of Colossians this morning, that you would illumine our eyes and our hearts by your spirit, that you would set us up for the study of this book over the next four or five months, that you would do good things in this place to communicate to us your care and your love and above all, your supremacy and your preeminence over all things. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is important as you begin a book study, if you've ever done an entire book study uh, on your own in your own devotional time, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion guide, to read through that entire book. And the reason why you want to read through the entire book is to get a sense of the story as a whole or as the whole picture of what is being communicated there. And before we'll dive go verse by verse, word by word through the book of Colossians over the course of the next four or five months, we're probably in sometime in January, that it's before we get to those kind, of, those kind of exercises that we take a snapshot of what is going on in Colossians as a whole, that we understand the context of Colossians, the audience, that we understand who's writing it, why he's writing this letter, and what is mainly communicated as a whole in the course of this letter. And so the message of the Colossians as a whole is what we're looking at this morning. So three points for you. First, we'll begin with the basic information, the bio of sorts of Colossians, which is the author and the audience of this message. It says it there in verses 1 and 2. We'll begin with the author. And the author, as it claims there at the very beginning, is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. Paul is indeed the author of this letter. He also mentions Timothy there, not because necessarily Timothy's ideas are behind this letter, but in the theological and academic world, we call Timothy an amnusis. In other words, he's a secretary. He is taking down what Paul is telling him. He is Paul's secretary. Who is Paul is dictating his words and his letters and his writings to Timothy, and Timothy is helping him. For the most part, what we see in this book is that Paul talks in the first person singular, I. He's not talking about we to you, Colossians. It is Paul as a singular person speaking to the Colossian people. Now, many people over the years have questions, really over the last 150 years, have questioned whether Paul really is the author. In the theological world, there are those we would call liberal theologians, those who take a more wide and broad and less conservative view about God's word. They take a lot more freedoms and liberties with God's word, often rejecting it outright in what it has to say. And liberal theologians, beginning in about the middle part of the 20th or 19th century, began to question whether Paul was really the author of this book. In fact, um, there's not a single book in the entirety of the New Testament that Paul claims to have written that is more questioned than the book of Colossians. Mostly, now here's where they, people lose the forest for the trees when they do this, is they begin to study the very nuances of the vocabulary. And what, why they question whether Paul is the author of this book is they look at the way all the other letters that Paul has written and they go, there's new vocabulary words here that Paul is using. Now to me, that thing seems a little bit like navel-gazing. To say, well, Paul didn't use this word over here, so it can't be him. I think that's losing some, something very key. Colossians is different, and it's, the vocabulary is different because it is a polemical book. In other words, what that, is, what that means is Paul is defending Christianity and the gospel against specific attacks. That there are actual specific false teachers that have tried to infiltrate the church in Colossae, and they are speaking and teaching specific things, and so Paul is addressing and speaking against those specific things. And so Paul will actually use their own vocabulary and use it against them. 
or show how the gospel is actually a better fulfillment of the things that they'll talk about. Therefore, you see words like asceticism, which Paul doesn't really use in other places, or the fullness of things, which Paul doesn't tend to use in other places as well, because those are the words that the false teachers were using. It makes sense with different letters also that Paul would take a different tone in this book. For instance, one of the books that's actually another letter that's sent with the book of Colossians or the letter to the Colossian church is the letter to Philemon. Now, it makes sense that Colossians would take a different tone and use different vocabulary because Philemon is written to a particular person, not to a whole church. It is a very relational, very personal document that Paul is sending. And so there is going to be some differences in the way Paul writes. I think you can see that in the way you write letters. They're different the way you letter versus an email there's going to be the differences and so the arguments that paul is not the author when it clearly states that paul the author is rather silly to me there you go there's my defense of paul as the author aren't you glad to have that now who is paul paul if you are uh, familiar with christianity and have spent much of your life in sunday school you know the stories of paul about him being dropped down in a basket and how he became to him to know the lord but if you're not familiar with paul Paul was originally a Pharisee. He was a great religious leader within the Jerusalem and Jewish church, was well-taught and well-learned, a brilliant man, and he hated Christianity. And what we find in the book of Acts is that Paul one day, and while he's on his way to persecute the Christian church in a city called Damascus, Jesus shows up to Paul, and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me, and why are you persecuting my church? And in fact, Jesus strikes Paul blind for a period of a couple days. And while Paul is a man, when Jesus interrupts and invades his life, while Paul is a man who is first persecuting the church, then through this experience comes to believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one to whom all Jewish people have longed for for all of their history, and now rests fully, his trust is upon him. And Paul then does a completely 180 in his life and becomes the church's perhaps its greatest theologian and greatest church planter. And over the course of his rest of his life, he will plant churches all over the known worlds. All through Acts, it follows the story of Paul. And we see his great theological treatises throughout the New Testament. Romans and Ephesians are well known as Paul's writings. And what we find when we come to this point in Paul's life, in the, when he writes this letter to the church of King Colossae, is that Paul at this point is imprisoned, most likely in Rome, for preaching the gospel. In fact, there's actually, these are known as the prison epistles. There are four epistles that Paul writes while he is in prison. Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And in fact, three of these books are probably written together or sent together by the same person. We find in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 that Paul mentions this guy named Tychicus and another guy named Onesimus. And he sends these men with letters to the Ephesian church, to the Colossian church, and a letter, a personal letter to Philemon. He sends these letters all together with these men. And so that brings us to the audience of this letter. So we've seen the author. The author is Paul. And now we also see the audience. And it's clearly stated there that the audience is the church in Colossae. Colossae is a city located about 100 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea along what is known as the Lycus River Basin. At one time, Colossae was a a city of great uh, importance in that world, in the Greek world. Of, of commercial trading, but over the course of the couple hundred years before Paul is writing, it has lost its sense of importance. 
It has actually become like many cities you might find in the south that at one point were great manufacturing cities, has lost that business, and so the youth don't tend to stay there. They tend to move towards the larger cities. That is actually what's going on in Colossae at this time. In fact, it's about 12 miles away from a city that is doing much more, much better, a church called Laodicea, or a city called Laodicea. It is much more the commercial and, and suburban hub of that region now. So Colossae is on the downward turn. And what we find here, interestingly enough, that one commentator put it, is that Colossian, the Colossian church, is the least important of all the places that Paul has written to. It is a small church in a small city and not a very important location in the world. And yet the Apostle Paul takes the time to direct this teaching because he loves God's church. Finally, one little point about the Colossian church is also that Paul didn't know these people. That whereas most of the other books and letters that Paul has written in the New Testament, he is, well, he is the one who has planted the churches. But in this case, Paul does not have direct contact with the people of Colossae. He did not plant the church. There is no record of him ever going to the Colossae. Instead, the church was planted about 10 years earlier before Paul has written this book by a name named Epaphras. Epaphras had gone and studied and worked with Paul, most likely why Paul was in Ephesus. And during a great time of great spiritual vigor and evangelistic efforts and church planting, Epaphras moved out from Paul and went and planted most likely three different churches, one in a city called Hierapolis, then in Laodicea, and also in Colossae, which was Epaphras' hometown. So Paul is not from here. He doesn't know these people. It is the least important of all cities, and yet Paul writes this brilliant and beautiful book of commendation to them and care for these people. All right, so that's the basic biographical sketch, the background, the context of the author and the audience of this message. You still with me? Barely, right? All right. We get on to the second thing. That's the basic information. But there is a reason why Paul decides to write this book. There is a particular occasion, as I mentioned earlier, that there appears to be a particular reason and theological emphasis that Paul has. And so we also want to look not only at the author and the audience, but the occasion for this message. It appears that in the story, in the letter of Colossians, that we find is that Epaphras, this friend of Paul's who went out from Paul to plant these churches, has gone back to Paul to report what is going on in the church there in Colossae. But in his report, Paul comes with great concern because there appears to be some false teachers who are seeking to infiltrate and influence the church there. They are confusing the young believers. Remember, this is a church that's probably less than 10 years old. Remember, Christianity is pretty brand spanking new. These are people who are growing easily confused, a lot of young believers And so it appears that what Paul is doing in this letter is responding very directly to the teachings of these false teachers and this false doctrine, this heresy that is being proposed in the church there. What was the nature of this false teaching is really important to understand in order to best understand the book of Colossians. Now the problem is we don't actually have a clearly articulated talk or sermon from one of these false teachers. What we have to do is work back from what Paul says in the book of Colossae and infer what it appears that he is referring to or talking against in these false teachers. Now, here's the general understanding that we can get from looking at Colossae as a whole, or the book of Colossians. It appears that what what these false teachers are teaching is not an outright denial of Christ as God and as Savior, but what they were doing is they were mixing with the gospel of Christ other pieces from other religions, pagan religions, Greek philosophies, and Jewish rituals in order to come up with what we would call a syncretistic religion, 
A syncretistic religion is something that does just that. It takes bits and pieces from all kinds of different parts of other traditions and philosophies and religions and creates its own kind of mixture. Uh, there was a time when I was in college, I went and spent about a week in Haiti, and one of the things you, you see very, very quickly when you enter into Haiti as you see all the taxis, all over them are written scripture verses. And you, this is very odd because Haiti is not necessarily known for being a Christian island. In fact, it's actually known for being an island that is controlled by witch doctors who practice voodoo. But what you see everywhere is that there are scripture passages on, on all the taxis. Now, what's happened there is there is also a significant Roman Catholic influence in Haiti. And what has happened is the people there have mixed both voodoo and Roman Catholicism to where they use scripture passages and they put them all over their taxis thinking that it will protect them from the curses of the witch doctors and from the evil spirits that are out there so they won't get into car crashes and things like that. That is a syncretistic religion where you've mixed different parts of different things to create your own sort of religion. The nature and essence of their teaching was distressing this church in Colossae, in large part because what they were coming to do is they were coming to communicate to the church in Colossae that they're like, this Jesus guy, this is really great. We, we're so glad that you know about Jesus, but there's something more. If you want to be a really great Christian, you've got to have Jesus, and you've got to have something else. Every part of the church tends to have this lean, something else that we tend to add. If you've ever spent much time in a charismatic church or a Pentecostal church, what they would say is you've got to have Jesus, but then you also have to have the second blessing of the Holy Spirit that is manifested through prophecy and tongues. And if you get that, then you're a really great Christian. Or I, I spent a significant amount of time with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, now simply known as Crew. And in one of their pamphlets, or what was known as the Four Spiritual Laws, it appears that there's this doctrine within their teaching that says if you, want, you can be a Christian, but you can be a carnal Christian, but then you hit the second level when you really submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Second tier, second blessing, the fullness of the Christian life. We Presbyterians have got this as well, don't we? You come, you come to know Jesus, and that's wonderful and sweet, but now you've got to get to know this guy named John Calvin. And if you just know him, the fullness of Christianity would be upon you. This is, we all have our flavor, the things that we add. Well, Paul outlines to us in chapter 2, and if you want to turn there in your Bibles in Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to walk through what, how Paul outlines the distinctives of these false teachers' teaching. And what it is that they're saying and why it's distressing the Christians. In Colossians 2.8, we see the summary of their teaching. In short, it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then Paul, through the rest of the chapter, for the most part, then goes on to address the specific elements of this false teaching. For instance, in verses 16 and 17, look there. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul is telling us there is part of the syncretistic religion is they have taken on themselves, the Colossian church, aspects of Old Testament Jewish rituals and traditions. And Paul has said, no, 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 Jesus has put, has put an end to all those things. He is the fullness of these things. Jump down to verses 18 and 19. We see more. Then Paul says this, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Apparently these teachings and these false teachers were teaching that we needed and we need to worship angels and or as mediaries between us and Jesus. 
Let me walk through this just a little bit. A central feature of a local folk belief of a pagan uh, religion there was to call on angels for help and protection from evil spirits, similar to what was going on in Haiti. The characteristics are well attested through various old um, uh, writings and findings and scribblings that we have found in uh, geological. What's the right word I'm looking for? Some of you. Thank you. Archaeological studies. Thank you. Uh, See, I need you. Uh, Archaeological studies. For instance, there is a stone called the magic stone amulet that was designed to be worn around your neck. And it was to protect you, it was to call upon uh, angels such as Michael and Gabriel and other guys named Raphael to protect the one who wore it. Kind of reminds me of Sophia, right? If you like Disney Junior. I can't stand that show because of this reason. This is what they're proposing in Disney Junior. It's a little girl who wears an amulet to protect her from evil things. And this is what is going on in the Colossian church. What is likely happening at Colossae is that a shaman-like figure, a teacher, or many teachers have entered in saying, you need to worship Jesus, but in order to get to Jesus, you also have to worship these angels. Interesting enough, there's a significant portion of our history called the Roman Catholic Church that says something similar. That getting to Jesus, you have to go through his mother, and therefore you better worship Mary and pray to her, because Jesus is just a little bit too far above you. Therefore, we need somebody else for another stepping stone. Colossians 2, 20 and 21, we move on with more of what they communicate. If, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So we have Jewish rituals, pagan rituals and teachings, and then we also have this teaching of asceticism, a bodily form of, a, of excessive self-denial. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. All these teachings were being mixed together to add to Christian truth. And what these people were saying was you've got to have these in order to be a fuller, better Christian, to have a fuller experience. And someone may be saying in order to be a true Christian, you've got to have these elements. So you may say, well, these seem rather clear that these are a problem theologically. How is it that Christians could be taken sway by these things? But again, you have to remember this is a church that's less than 10 years old. These are people who have come out of these backgrounds. This is their presuppositions and their worldview that they are being removed from, and that takes time, and that is difficult to have your whole worldview shifted and changed. What we find is Paul is combating these errors. And what does he use? What is his central message as we're about to turn the corner for our last point this morning? Central message that Paul is going to give us this morning. What is the central message that he uses to combat these heresies? To combat an error which offered a fuller spiritual experience. To combat the area which, error which offered a new spiritual sense of freedom. To combat the area which promised great powers over evil spirits. To combat the error that would say, you've got to live this way and this way and this way. What does he point to? He points simply to this. Paul presses one truth over and over and over again, and that is this. It is the sole sufficiency of Christ Jesus his preeminence above all things, that you need Christ and Christ alone, and that's it. That's the central message of Colossians. The message of this, of this book is that you are complete in him. Here's a sentence that I want you to know. It's actually an equation, not so much a sentence. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus Plus nothing equals everything. That is the central message of Colossians. 
Colossians was written to show the superiority of Christ Jesus over all rituals, all powers, all philosophers, all traditions. And what we find is that what Paul is speaking to against in our setting, we don't necessarily have too much problem worshiping angels, but what we do have a problem with, Christian syncretism, is to add something to Jesus. Jesus plus homeschooling my children equals everything. Jesus plus not drinking this equals everything. Jesus plus doing this equals everything. So this brings us to our final section this morning, the heart and message and the essence of what we're being communicated to here in Colossians. The heart of the message is this, as I've already stated it, is this simply, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. The book is about the incomparable Incompatible, incomparable, incomparable Christ. It is about a soul sufficiency, the sovereignty of a Christ in whom we find everything that we need. The, ver- the word that Paul actually uses there in verses, I believe, 15 through 20 is the preeminence of Christ. Eminence means lofty and majestic, above all things. And, and then it, but then it uses the word pre. That doesn't mean before, but it means first. He is above all things. He is first and foremost. He is over all, which is why some people translate that word preeminent as supreme. At the center of the Christian life is knowing the supremely sufficient and glorious Christ Jesus. That is what this message is about. And the crescendo of chapter 1 is a very famous passage in all of Scripture. The crescendo of chapter 1 communicates this to a point where Paul appears to begin to break into song and to spiritual ecstasy here in chapter 1. Let me read this for you and follow along with me, beginning in in verse 11 to give you context. And I'll read through verse 20. Paul says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here he goes with the song. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That is the central message of Colossians stated there at length. Verses 15 and 16, what does it show us? We see the preeminence of Christ over all things, over and over again. Verses 15 and 16 tell us the preeminence of Christ in creation. Verse 17, his preeminence over history. Verse 18, his preeminence over the church and over all new creation. Verse 19, his preeminence over the revelation of God through the incarnation. And in verse 20, we see the preeminence of Christ in our redemption. Over all things. And then even in verses 20 and 29, which I did not read to you, Paul gets into an autobiographical sketch in which he says, look at my life. It is obvious that I live my life for the preeminent Lord. I'm willing to do everything for him. That's the central message. But that's only part of it. It flows down. Central of the heart of the message is that Christ is supreme, but it moves on. And there are implications to this Central message. The second thing we see at the heart of the message of Colossians is this. 
is that we must be hidden in Christ Jesus. The fullness of the Christian experience is not found in Jewish rituals. It is not found in pagan beliefs. It is not found in asceticism or in our activities. It is found in the supreme and sufficient one. And the beauty of the gospel is that you are in him. This phrase, in him, a prepositional phrase, is found all throughout Colossians. In particular in chapters 1 and 2. Now what does it mean to be hidden in Christ? What we see in chapter 2 is this. It explains it in two large ways. That to be hidden in Christ means that you, your old person, has died with Christ. Our life is now changed. Who we were is gone. And that we have been raised with Christ. We sang this multiple times this morning. That with him, we, the old man is gone and the new man has been risen. Which means we have a new identity. This is how Paul sees his life. As hidden in Christ Jesus. From the day he ran smack dab into Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is how Paul sees his life. And he wants you to see your life as well. That he is hidden in him. And this is the theme that we see from the word go in Colossians. Who is it that writes this book? A man named Paul. Now was his name always Paul? No, no. At one time it was Saul. From the very word go, we see someone's identity has changed because he is hidden now in Christ Jesus. And so your identity has been changed. Being in Christ is a central theme. Let me just run through this just to show you very clearly that this is what is going on here in Colossians. Verses 1, verse 2 of chapter 1. To the saints in Christ. Verse 114. Christ in whom we have redemption. 119. In him all the fullness. 2-3. Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom. 2.6, so walk in him. 2.7, rooted and built up in him. 2.9, in the flame the fullness of deity is seen. 2.10, you have been filled in him. 2.11, in him you are spiritually circumcised. And 2.12, in him you are buried and you are resurrected. In him. In him is our new identity. Christ is your identity. And when you have died and been raised in somebody, he is your all, the sufficient one. That's what we need for the Christian life. And what we see is that Paul, what Paul is addressing here with these heresies is that he is not simply after doctrinal mental things, but he is after hearts because a heart issue with us is heresies aren't simply something that comes from our mind and out of our mouths, but they rest at the heart of our hearts, at the center of our hearts is that what we do is we try to add something to our identity besides Christ Jesus. Jesus plus being a perfect mother. Jesus plus having success in the worst place. Jesus plus being really smart. And wherever you locate your identity on top of Jesus, if there is anything there after the plus to equal everything, that's an idol. That is an idol. Screw tape and the screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis there is an uncle, I believe, and he's writing to, it's a demon uncle, and he's writing to his younger demon nephew, is what's going on in the screw tape letters. And his nephew is trying to lead a particular Christian astray. And here's what he says. The, the, the nephew's name is Wormwood. And here's what the, the uncle says. They write that, we, Wormwood, you should encourage your Christian person that someone should be a Christian and. Christianity and politics. Christianity and good works. Christianity and never let them believe in a mere Christianity. Idolatry is trying to build your identity on something besides God and besides Christ as your Savior. 
That's what Paul is after. This is not mere doctrinal knowledge that he's trying to correct. Oh, he's trying to do that. But he's trying to get something deeper that's going on inside of us. That we are hidden in Christ Jesus. It affects you deeply. And when it affects you deeply at the very core of who you are, one last thing comes out at the heart of the message of Colossians. And it's seen in the structure of the message. This is seen in almost all of Paul's letters. This is how he formats and structures his letters. He begins, first and foremost, with a theological gospel treatise in which he enumerates the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then at some point, there is a turn in the book in which he will say something like, therefore, live like this. In light of the gospel, live like this. This is Paul applying the gospel to people's lives. And this is what we see in the book of Colossians as well. Chapters 1 and 2 are the doctrinal explanation and propositions that are beautiful and amazing in Colossians. And then chapters 3 and 4 are the practical implications of living out that truth into your life. To put it another way, chapters 1 and 2 give us the vertical indicative. You know grammar? The vertical indicative is a relationship between us and God and it is the present reality. It's something that God has done in the gospel. But then in chapters 3 and 4, we give the horizontal imperative. You know God, you've been restored to God through the gospel, and now live your life like this in relation to one another. How shall we then live is the theme of chapters 3 and 4. That if you're hidden with God in Christ, if your identity is Christ Jesus fully and finally, then this is how you should then live. Now, this distinguishes the gospel from moralism, and this is really important. As Christians, we are very, very, very much about morality. And frankly, we are very, very much about the law. The law and morality have fallen on hard times because we have mixed up being moral and being law-abiding with being legalists and moralists. When you add an ist or an ism is when you get in trouble. A moralism is to say that the way I get salvation is through my morality. Legalism is the way I get salvation made right with God is through my law keeping. But the Bible never says that those are bad things to keep the law or to be a moral person. The problem is that when we see our morality or our law keeping as the means to get salvation, but the gospel doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Here's what it says. It says that you are perfectly righteous in God's sight. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. You have perfectly kept the law because of what Christ has done for you. Now, with that truth, with that objective reality being yours for all of eternity now, now live this way in light of it. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're living in light of the salvation that you already possess. And this is absolutely important for the Christian life. It is the means by which it helps you understand your assurance. It is the means by which you are a display, the witness of the gospel of God to the world. You live out the gospel in righteousness and law-abiding in moral living. And so Paul always takes the second half of his books to say, in light of all this stuff that I've written, live this way and live this way and live this way. And so Colossians is of great value because when you understand the gospel, when you understand the value, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus that is given to us in the gospel, it actually is the means by which you are freed from sin. It is the means by which Paul gives us the gospel in chapters 1 and 2 and then says, because you've been set free, now live this way. This is how we're supposed to live. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, Beholding the glory of the Lord, 
We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Now, this is so important for sanctification. If you're going to take the discovery class, you're just going to hear this over again. That the means by which you change is not that you walk an aisle one day and for the rest of your life you just grit your teeth and you try really hard and just, you just hope to make it. That's not how the Christian life works. And it's not like you leave the gospel, that's the starting point, and then you move on. No, the gospel is everything. What is the means of growing? To continually look to the glory of God that is clearly seen in the gospel of God. And what do we see in Colossians? That when you've seen the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, it changes a few parts of your life, just your church life, just your inner spiritual life, just your home life. No, it changes everything. In Colossians 15 through 20, when it's talking about the great treatise there, where Paul is going on and on and on about the sufficiency and supremacy, the preeminence of Christ Jesus, he is preeminent over what? All things. This is a beautiful aspect of the Christian life, that when you understand this, it affects everything. The gospel is not simply the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. It is not simply the starting point. It is everything. And you keep going back to it and going back to it and going back to it and then asking, how then shall I then live? All things. I gave you an equation earlier. Here's a simple phrase. I taught you Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Know that phrase, but know this one as well. Knowing Jesus changes everything. We're done. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we step into this this book that beautifully and articulately displays your supremacy, the grandness of who you are. Gracious God, I think of someone who I'm even discipling who has asked this of, of late, who's just said, I need to have a sense of the, grand, the greatness of God. Gracious God, I, I pray that you would answer that brother's prayer and that you would answer the prayer in this room that we would see Christ as exalted and high above all things and that by seeing the supremacy of Christ that everything in our life would be changed. That it would change the very way in which we see the world around us, the way in which we see every aspect of our life, our work life, being a boss, being a parent, being a child, being a church member, that everything would change. And that because of that, you would get the glory and the honor and the praise. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.